talking about working with justice-involved clients, and this is part two. Okay, so I'm Jim Bianco. I'm a judge. Uh, I've been working in the mental health court and now in, an, in the ODR court in uh, downtown Los Angeles for over 10 years. My name is Elizabeth. I work with DHS. I'm bringing on a new program right now, but until September 2022, I was the director of clinical programs at ODR, where I worked with justice-impacted clients and their providers. Hi, everybody. My name is Commissioner Ashley Price. I sit in dependency court at the Compton Courthouse. But prior to that gig, I was a deputy public defender for 16 years. And in my last couple years as a public defender, I worked in the ODR court. Um, so I'm happy to play a supporting role today. Thanks for having me back. And I'm Judge Carla Curlin. I was the ODR judge for five years before I turned it over to Judge Bianco. Very excited to have him on board because he's a mental health expert in the state of California. And we're honored to have him. When I looked at the competency slides, I was like, oh, let's get Judge Bianco involved in this training. So he graciously agreed to join us. And I, like Ms. Price, Commissioner Price, will be doing a supporting role today. So with that, we'll turn it over to the two of you. All right. So uh, let me talk about the mental health court uh, generally and also about criminal competency. Uh, and this is the court I was in uh, for 10 years until just uh, a couple months ago. Um, so there are certain cases that uh, are in the mental health court from start to finish. And a great example are conservatorship cases. Uh, the mental health court also handles uh, hospital writ proceedings. Um, and some other kinds of civil commitments that, uh, you know, like mentally disordered offender commitments or not guilty by reason of insanity commitments, things like that. Um, the majority of the caseload, though, at this point, comes from the criminal courts and their criminal competency cases. So what happens is if any judge in the entire county of Los Angeles that's handling a criminal case has a doubt about uh, a criminal defendant's competency, and the judge declares a doubt about the person's competency, and by local rule, the case uh, gets uh, transferred to the mental health courthouse. And at this point, there are four judges in mental health uh, that handle criminal competency cases, and it's probably about 80% of the caseload for each of those four judges. Um, so let's move to the next slide. So. Uh, just a quick overview of what criminal competency means. Uh, there are two parts to the, the test. Uh, the person has to have an understanding of the nature and purpose of the criminal proceedings. And the second part is uh, the person has to have a rational ability to consult with their attorney in their defense. So, you know, some people are really impaired. They, they really can't describe what happens in a courtroom or what the role is of the judge or the prosecutor or their defense lawyer. Um, but sometimes someone is, is doing well enough that they can uh, understand those things, uh, but they're still uh, suffering from uh, you know, a mental disorder uh, or some other cognitive impairment to the point where they, they really can't uh, rationally work with their attorney. So that's the test. Uh, and in the mental health court, there's a, uh, a, a, a very long-standing uh, process where we have psychiatrists that staff the courthouse every day. There are now six psychiatrists at the courthouse every day uh, that that do these competency evaluations, and there are plenty more out in the um, uh, you know doing this work in the jails or elsewhere. 
to provide uh, opinions about whether someone's competent or not. And based on those doctors' evaluations, the court and counsel uh, make determinations about competency. So um, there are two different processes at this point, uh, depending on whether the case is a, a felony, charges a felony offense or a misdemeanor offense. Um, as to both, once a doubt is declared in the criminal court, the criminal case gets put on hold. It's what we call suspending criminal proceedings. So the case is basically on hold in the criminal court, and then it's transferred over to the mental health court. Um, if the mental health uh, court decides that the person's competent, then the case goes right back to the criminal court, and the criminal court picks up where they left off. If, on the other hand, the person is found incompetent, then the mental health court is going to continue to handle the case uh, unless and until the person is restored to competency. So they're they're placed in treatment, uh, and uh, you know, depending on the person and depending on the treatment, uh, at some point they may be deemed uh, restored to competency, and then the case goes back to the criminal court. The um, Options in a felony case vary from uh, a state hospital. And at this point, people are going to uh, most of the state hospitals. Sometimes even people from uh, Los Angeles will, will even go up to Napa State Hospital, uh, certainly to Atascadero and then you know to, to Patton or, or Metro. Um, there are also community-based restoration options. Uh, the Office of Diversion and Reentry uh, uh, handles a lot of those cases for people that are found incompetent in felony cases. Uh, sometimes there are mental health diversion uh, recommendations, which uh, would put someone in community treatment. And then there are outpatient services that are uh, provided by the state. So the Department of Mental Health uh, uh, doesn't get involved in this uh, typically, but, but ODR does. So in misdemeanor cases, uh, there's a, a completely different process. And, and this is uh, a change that came about at the beginning of last year uh, through uh, SB 317. So you may hear SB 317 at times. Uh, and basically what SB 317 did was it completely changed uh, what happens in misdemeanor cases if someone is found incompetent. So there's no more restoration. So if the case gets sent to the mental health court and the court finds a person charged with a misdemeanor incompetent, that case is never going back to the criminal court. Uh, that criminal prosecution is, is basically on hold forever. Um, and the judge basically has uh, five options at that point. Uh, the first option is mental health diversion. And the, the, the attempt is really to, to get everyone into mental health diversion. Um, it's not always possible, either because the person's not interested or because there aren't services available. Uh, if that is the case, then the judge has several other options. Uh, the judge can refer the person to the assisted outpatient treatment team, and they can make a determination as to whether the person qualifies for that program. Uh, the judge can ask the public guardian to investigate suitability for an LPS conservatorship. Um, most people tend not to qualify, even though they're not doing well, they're not doing so poorly that they meet grave disability criteria, uh, but sometimes they do. Um, the uh, court or the judge can now refer to uh, the CARE Corps program, or I should say will be able to 
Uh, the statute provides for it, but our care court program is not yet up and running in Los Angeles. It should be, uh, I think the estimate is by the end of this calendar year. Uh, and once that is up and running, then that'll be another option. And then the final option is that the case can be dismissed, which uh, happens sometimes for all sorts of reasons, uh, uh, but that is another option. Judge Bianco, we have a question in the chat. What if the defendant was psychotic at the time of the offense, but because of medications taken in jail, they now understand the charges, though they may not remember what happened when they were psychotic? So it's a great question. Um, you know, competency is a point in time determination. It kind of works similarly to grave disability determinations. So if the person was not well at the time of the offense, um, and they're not well during the, the pendency of the offense, that's when they may get uh, referred for uh, criminal competency uh, determinations. In other words, a doubt may get declared. Um, but if they're doing better by the time that happens, uh, they may well be found competent and the criminal case resumes. Um, if they were not well at the time of the offense and they don't remember what happened, that actually isn't gonna affect competency. Um, it, it, you know, at least the way the question was worded, if they don't remember what happened, uh, that's not going to, that's not going to make, uh, it's not going to make them incompetent during the pendency of the case. So hopefully that makes sense. Can I just jump in for one second, Judge Bianco? Sure, of course. Um, so Judge Bianco is absolutely correct in that that court is going to deal with, but that would be something that the defense attorney would be interested in. So the defense attorney would need to work with the client to talk to them about what was happening at the time, what they do and don't remember. And the defense attorney would be able to perhaps um, hire some experts like a psychiatrist or a psychologist to write a report about um, what the symptoms were that the person was having at the time of the incident, what did the witnesses observe about the uh, client's behavior at the time. So that would be more of a defense attorney defendant issue more than it being directly handled by the judge, because as Judge Bianco indicated, that's not really a competency issue. So we hope that clears that up for you. If not, please uh, give us more questions in the chat. To this point, we've worked um... We've provided information about the courts, uh, the jails, and now we're gonna talk about actually working with these justice impacted clients. Um, we're gonna go over some general, I will do a general overview about this work. Um, this is really aimed at the fact that we understand when you're working with a client who's justice impacted, it adds complexity to uh, your delivering services. Um, there are gonna be courts involved now, attorneys involved. In turn, um, when their client's justice impacted and there's a case, there are new responsibilities on the part of the client and the provider. Also gonna go over some tools that I think you all have as providers that you may not always be aware of. Um, and then also making sure that you understand the resources available to you because you are such an important part of this process, um, making sure you're supported and know how to sort of navigate the different resources that can help you in serving your client. And at the end, we'll take questions. Um, my part's gonna be pretty short, so I'm hoping you all will take um, time to ask questions. And I'm hoping the judges will interrupt and add because this is definitely from the perspective of the program or like the provider, as opposed to an attorney or a judge. So I named the same, but not the same. So these clients and the work that's being done at baseline is really like the work that you've been doing probably in other programs. And 
the clients are the same as the ones you've worked with in other programs. They have come to you because they need support in accessing resources, which could be housing or mental health treatment. It could be substance use treatment. It could be, you know, making appointments for doctors. Um, these clients will have goals like your other clients have had, and they're going to have things that they want to accomplish. Um, but in this case, there are some other parties involved, which I mentioned before. There are judges involved now. There are attorneys, probation officers, um, and, and, and probably some other parties I'm not even thinking about. And those parties also have goals. Um, and in this case, which might seem a bit contrary to what you've been taught, those goals have to be balanced against that of the client. It cannot just be the client's goals that are kept in mind. Um, the big difference here, and some might say the biggest difference here is that when a client is justice involved, the, the same choices they might make as a voluntary client um, can have negative implications, right? So when a client's in on a voluntary, participating on a voluntary basis, they can choose to take medications or not take medications. They can choose to engage or not engage. Um, and that is normally okay, right? It's in, entirely their choice when they're in on a voluntary basis. But in this case, when they make those choices, they could be considered out of compliance with their probation or um, or the, the program requirements, and they face potential reincarceration, um, amongst other things. Okay, so I titled this client's responsibility um, because unlike clients in on a voluntary basis where they're really only responsible to themselves, um, they're in a program that they chose to be in and they promised the people who gave them this opportunity that they would follow the requirements of the program. Um, I know this is often very tough for providers because it feels like the client's lost their choice to, um, to sort of direct their own treatment. But you have to remember that the client chose to be in the program at the start instead of jail. And you need to remember they're going to continue to make choices to stay in the program or take themselves out of the program throughout the course of treatment. Um, this is still a, a super heavy responsibility for the client. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, and so really emphasizing that the best way to support them is to make sure they're making informed choices. Um, make sure that you are knowing what's going on with the case, understanding what the requirements of the case are, um, and really conveying that to the client. So when they do make these choices, some that we would agree with and some that we would not, that they know what the potential impact is. So for example, if you're working with a client and they um, are ordered to SUD treatment and the judge says, you know, this time is the third time. So I'm expecting strict compliance, right? No, no hiccups. You need to let the, the client know this means likely, more likely than not, that if they don't engage and comply with the recommendations, there's a potential for either being taken out of the program, um, remanded, maybe sent back to jail. So while the, the client has a responsibility to make these informed choices, you also play a really important role in making sure they understand what they are agreeing to or not agreeing to. Um, there's also some components in this, in this client responsibility piece where you feel like um, you might be being punitive. And it's something to be aware of, like, but you're not, right? You're reminding them of the agreement that they made with the court when they entered the program. Um, you're not setting these requirements. These requirements were shared with them when they entered the program. They're being set by the judge and the attorneys. You're merely there to support them and help them make the right decisions. Um, you're also not telling on the client when you tell the court what's going on in their treatment. Uh, another thing to really remember is that you are communicating with the court. That's your responsibility. Um, but that really what's in the substance of that report is based on the client's own choices. 
So speaking of provider responsibility, your role, because there's so much weighing on everything that happens in this case, is pretty significant. Um, and in fact, if you sort of fulfill these responsibilities, right, you'll probably become one of the more important people on the treatment team because you'll be the person the client relies on the most to really understand what's going on. Uh, the attorney might disagree, but that's what I think. And then um, you'll also become probably the person that has the most information about the client and the client's treatment and someone that the other parties rely on for, for information. So um, you should really know your client, know their history, know how they process information, know how they remember information, understand what their treatment needs are. Um, this is gonna affect your ability to um, understand how to engage the client, advocate for the client, um, and really like in all respects, really serve the client in this case. Um, understand the case and the requirements of the program. This will help you keep on track and it'll help you keep everyone else on track. Not everyone goes to court, not everyone reads the orders. And sometimes the client doesn't always get it right. And usually more than not, um, you're one person on a team of many. So uh, your responsibility is to help the client make sure that everything that needs to get done is getting done. Um, for example, uh, the judge might ask that the client see a prescriber before the next hearing. You can't merely rely on the client hearing that and getting it done. Like your role really is to be like, oh, so this is a new requirement. This is a deadline. I'm going to make sure everyone knows. Um, See, so this one, I, I can't elaborate too much on, but it's understand the expectations of the court. I've actually had the opportunity to work with all three of the judges on this panel, and they are amazing. And all judges are amazing in their own way, but you really need to understand what, some people um, are gonna have a little more understanding of what's going on and maybe be a little more lenient or try things or, or give it a shot. Some, some judges might be okay with the report being late being submitted on the day of. Some judges are gonna be like, if they don't get on the day of, then it doesn't count. So really understand what the expectations of the court are. Um, and you have to help the client understand these expectations of the court. Um, remember that clients hearing something in court or hearing something from their attorney or the judge doesn't mean that they understand what is expected of them because of that. Um, let's see, and then finally, keeping parties updated as to client's treatment, engagement, et cetera. So this is like a theme that's that sort of common throughout this presentation is that while everyone wants to see your clients be successful and make progress, the goals that I mentioned earlier that the other parties have are also important. Um, and so the judges will have a priority on public safety. Um, the prosecution attorney will likely as well. And just as you have a responsibility to the client, you have a responsibility um, to the other parties in this program to make sure that they are getting the information they need to fulfill their role in this case. Well, I just wanted to jump in on one thing um, uh, that I think is probably helpful for you, you guys to know. Um, you know, I think some judges may try to be easygoing if a report's late, but just to put it in context, most of the courts that you're gonna be submitting reports to are very, very busy courts. And I can tell you that, you know, we are uh, always sort of struggling with, with trying to make, stretch our resources, right? And make, you know, make it work um, just the way that you are, right? None of us are, are putting our feet up very much, right? This is hard work. And when reports are late, it causes the judicial assistant, 
or some other court personnel to spend an awful lot of time trying to chase down those reports. Because if we don't get a report, we end up having to put a case over, which seems like a small thing, but it actually involves a, a significant amount of work. Um, and I can tell you that in, in the courts I've been in, um, it, it's sort of an 80-20 thing, right? I mean, the, the 20% of reports that you're missing are that, you know, take up 80% of the judicial officer's time, so or the judicial assistant's time. So you could really, really help us by making sure that you know the date that the report is supposed to be in and that you get it in, uh, you know, the best thing is a couple of days before, because then it has, you know, time to kind of work through the process and it'll be where it needs to be. And the judicial assistant's not going to have to uh, spend time trying to track down your report. If I can jump into, we have yeah. a comment in the chat and then I um, just had a practical tip as well. So I'll share the practical tip and then I'll read you the question from the chat. Um, the practical tip that I have, and Elizabeth is touching on this when she says that uh, different judges operate differently. And part of your responsibility is to feel out or get to know the judge in your courtroom as much as you can. If it's your first time being there, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult, but um, criminal courtrooms are open to the public. Um, get there early, sit in the back of the courtroom and observe. Um, try and get a feel for the tone of the courtroom. Is this bench officer really casual and may want to hear from you directly? Or is this a very formal bench officer where everybody needs to be very quiet? The judge is not going to hear from you directly, just wants the information from the attorneys. And so see if you have a moment that morning to observe some of the other cases that are being called so you can get a feel for what might be expected of you when it becomes your turn to either stand up there with the client or talk about the details in the report that you've submitted. And Elizabeth, the chat says, I think forensic clients are, are so used to feeling taken advantage of or being lied to that I felt like being as straightforward and honest as possible was the best way to respect the client's autonomy, even though it was rough having some of the conversations when I first started. That was her comment. Could you, um, do you agree or disagree? Agree. I 100% take the same approach. I think a lot of times providers feel like they want to sort of cushion the blow and sort of wrap things up in a, a nice package, looking at like what the best outcome could be. And I find that in the end, if it doesn't end up that way, if you weren't fully transparent from the beginning, the client will feel, I think, taken advantage of or lied to. So there's always a way to, to provide accurate information about the the good and the bad, the potential negative consequences in a way that is respectful and honest and not threatening or punitive. And I, I think there's a real value to that in working with clients, especially our clients, right? If they're justice impacted, more likely than not, they are not used to being empowered and being given all the information they need and sort of being um, not lied to. That's a great comment. So provider tools. Um, I think the providers have these tools they're just not aware of because they're just inherent in the work they're doing. And the first is the language you use. You have this power to inform the court about the client and inform how the, the court and the attorneys and everyone in that courtroom sees the client. Um, so it's really important to always remember your words have impact. You should be objective. You should use observations. You should be respectful. You should be transparent both ways. Um, oh, for, uh, for example, I've heard clients described as, um, difficult or like not caring and, and they could be difficult. They could be not caring, but also it could be related to maybe they're being symptomatic. They're not being on meds. It could be, they're confused about the, 
the program. So it's really a responsibility of yours to understand what's going on and then deliver the information in objective ways. So how are they being difficult? Right now, they're really struggling to engage, right? You're trying to go, they're not motivated, which also could be, um, sorry, some people will say they're not motivated when they're really trying to say like, right now, it's, I'm really struggling to get this client to make progress. And once you talk about what it is, it's the challenge, then you guys can team, uh, work with the team to uh, collaborate and, and identify an intervention to help the client through this process. Um, uh, for example, um, a case manager, this is a real case, and I think it was actually um, probably in Judge Kerlin's court, there was a client who was noted to be hostile in housing, aggressive, throwing gang signs, and just really like losing their temper apparently. Um, and so the judge, based on this case manager's assessment and description of the client, ordered the client to anger management classes. And the client did not make progress. And the behaviors were continuing and everyone was a little bit confused. So the judge contacted the program, I think it was ODR, um, who looked into the client's case and learned the client had been titrated slowly off their antipsychotic um, over the course of several months. Um, they learned that in the client's history and the client was symptomatic that they did experience gang-related delusions so the recommendation there pivoted, right? Because we, we took the time, like, um, this is a difference in behavior. This is what's happening. Let's look into everything else. We got him back to see a prescriber, got him back on his medications. And this is the honest to God truth. They became stable, made progress in treatment, moved into permanent housing and finished probation. Obviously best case scenario, but things like that can't happen. Um, another real tool you guys have is treatment planning. Uh, I know it feels different because the clients are justice involved and there's a court involved, but really it's, it's, you're doing the same work. So when you see something that's not going right in client's treatment, the responsibility is to figure out what do we need to do? How can we plan to make progress? And so things are going to not go well in a client's case. It's inevitable, not always, but in some clients' cases, uh, if you walk into court with a treatment plan in mind, it's going to help the judge and it's going to help your client. Cause if you don't know what to do next, the judge did. not, always won't know what to do. It's sort of hard to be on a panel of judges. If you don't know what to do next, the judge likely will not know what to do next either. So walking in with a treatment plan, being like, yes, this went wrong, but this is what we're going to do about it is a really significant tool that you have. And finally, the accuracy in reporting. We talk about reporting all throughout this presentation. It's so important. Um, it's really important that you're giving the court good information and you're doing it uh, timely. It's so important that I did a whole slide on it. So what does it mean um, when we say uh, that the accuracy of a report is important? Um, well, first, why? I think the most important reason is that the information you're sharing is really going to be the most informative for everyone in that proceeding. Um, sorry. Um, it's going to be what the court bases their decision on and make, uh, don't be confused. When you're walking into the courtroom with your client, even if you think it's just a progress report, it's really an opportunity for the client to, for the court to make a decision. Even if it's that they're doing so well, they're just going to move out the progress report date. So what goes into a, a progress report, a good progress report? What? Um, update the basic elements of treatment since the last report. Talk about housing, medications, engagement. Um, but use new information. Don't repeat information from past reports. It, it can be confusing that way. Um, in one case, there was a progress report where the provider reported the client was using 
And the judge reads it three days before, has a plan in mind, sending them DSUD, walks into the courtroom, provider shares, oh, that was actually that incident that I reported two times ago. Um, I just forgot to take it out. So you were sort of sending this client down this one path that, did, that they didn't need to go down. Um, you want to share the good and the bad, the good for sure. Clients deserve recognition for the hard work they're doing, the progress they make, and the judges love to hear it, um, but also the not so good. Um, this serves multiple purposes. First of all, it informs um, the treatment team on areas that the client might need extra support before it becomes a crisis, right? So if the client is starting to become medication non-adherent, went from 100% to, to 90%, um, don't not share that because if you can nip it at 90%, then it won't be a crisis where everyone gets involved at 0%. Um, it's also a matter of, this is, I know, a common theme of the idea that the other parties in this case also have a responsibility to fill the, fulfill their roles. And public safety is a big one. I think the worst case that I ever heard was there was a case manager who was working with a client who got arrested on a new pretty significant charge and the case manager did not share that with the court because they did not believe the client was guilty. So that caught everyone off guard, including the client's own attorney. Um, so you really just, you wanna be really transparent with the client, but you also wanna be transparent with the other parties. Um, how use verified information, don't guess, don't say, I think they did this in housing. I think they weren't in housing for five days. I think they were in housing for five days. It's your responsibility to verify the information. Um, again, use objective language. Um, when? So the report should always be accurate. It should be accurate when you write it, which means you give yourself enough time to write it. And if you find something in it and you're like, oh, wait, I didn't actually don't know that this happened. You're giving yourself time to make sure you, you can figure that out. And then anytime something changes from when you've submitted something to the court um, and the date of the hearing, the court should be updated as well, good or bad. Um, I don't know what the technical term is, but this is a, a a court report, like you're reporting something to the court, they're taking it as truth. So you wanna make sure anything you're submitting, especially like if it's on the record is accurate. Um, and then why? Accountability, you wanna make sure the client knows, this is, goes back to Michelle's comment about transparency. Like if something happens, like we have a responsibility to report it to the court. And then at the same time, it also holds the other members of the treatment team accountable. Can I, Sorry, can I also Jeff. jump in? Yes, please. Um, I love it when, uh, someone submits a report and they tell me what they would like the court to do. Because, you know, I feel like our role um, is, you know, there are multiple things we're trying to achieve, but one of the biggest things we're trying to achieve is to support what you're doing in treatment. And, you know, I've been doing this full time for, for years, right? But I still could really use your input on how should I approach this person to try to help them move along in treatment. If, if you're submitting a report to a judge that doesn't do this stuff regularly and isn't experienced, it becomes that much more important to prompt the judge about, hey, this is what this person needs to hear from the court. And I'll contribute to the flip side of that is sometimes a report will have recommendations, but it's submitted as a non-appearance. And I'm like, wait, 
if they're struggling, like they're not making the curfew every night and the and the recommendation is for the court to remind the client to be curfew compliant, then it needs to be a WebEx or in court so we can tell them. So that's a little frustrating too. Where there's great recommendations, but it's a non-appearance. So just be mindful of the level of report you're submitting. If it's an in court, a WebEx or a non-appearance, if there's recommendations, we might need to see that person on WebEx or in court to give the recommendation. Elizabeth, there's another question in the chat. At times, things would be difficult to verify since we have to rely on other people being communicative. What is the best language to use in cases like this? I think the judges probably, are, or you are probably better to answer this, but for example, you saw that there was a report the client was 64% med adherent and doesn't seem right to you. I would just really be clear, like there was a report from housing that they're 64% med adherent. And then if there's something that you think the reason that you had to verify was that, you know, I saw that report, but it doesn't make sense because they're so stable. You can put that in too. Um, I, I think that's what you want to do. You just want to always qualify if you need to. Going with um, your section here on this slide about reputation, I think it's really important that the judge, um, you build a good reputation with the judge. So I would, in that case, suggest saying something like, housing is reporting that the client is 64% medication compliant. Clinician attempted to verify and was unable to do so. Clinician's impression of the client are that the client is med compliant and clinician will continue to work with the client to encourage further medication compliance so that you're acknowledging the information that you've received from housing, but you're also communicating your unique perspective in the interactions that you've had with the client so that the judicial officer knows not to put all their eggs in the basket of the 64% because you as the clinician are seeing something else. Judge Bianco, you're nodding. Um, anything else you wanted to chime in on that one? No, I think that's right. I think it, it, and I would even, if you think the person's med compliant, I would probably lead with that and then talk about the 64%. It's a great example because I, I see those numbers all the time and I have inquired enough times that now I don't really put a lot of stock in them um, because, you know, when I sort of say, hey, what is what what is this? You know, I, I, I there have been a number of times where I've found out that, well, we're not really sure about it. So I think what uh, Commissioner Price said is absolutely right. You know, be uh, as communicative with the court as you can about information that you know, you think may not be uh, particularly reliable. And we're not medical doctors. So one of the ones that's really confusing for me, sometimes it'll say like client is 20% med compliant, but received his long acting injection. And I'm like, well, that's the, that's the money drug, right? We want the long acting injection. So I don't know what's the missed medication. Is it Benadryl at night? Is that optional? Is that significant? So a little bit more information because I don't want to be yelling at someone you're 20 percent med compliant, that's not going to do it when the next line is they got their injection and they're actually doing great. So we, you know, and we know more than judges who don't work in a collaborative court. So you want to be careful mm -hmm. that the medication section accurately represents to the best of your ability what's happening. So a judge doesn't react and it's not really accurate information, if that makes sense. Um, and then I, that's what I intended for reputation, but I also wanted to um, focus on, it's the reputation of the, the program as well, right? So 
this is a program and you're focused on your client, but, and we all know, like, I think these programs are great, but the ability to continue growing these programs and having support for these programs, it relies on um, like the judges, the prosecution attorneys, even the public saying, okay, you made this promise that this would happen in this program. They need to know that you'll deliver on your promise. And if you can't, you'll let them know, right? That you're not gonna hide anything. Um, so that was this slide, next slide, please. Okay, so this is the one where I really think the courts or the judges will have a better perspective on this um, than I will. So I'll just say, the question I get a lot is, sometimes I'm told my progress reports don't have enough information. Sometimes I'm told my progress reports have too much information. What am I supposed to share and when? And that goes not just with court reports, but sort of updates um, to probation officers and everyone has sort of different expectations. I will say your agencies probably have their own policies and your supervisor will uh, guide you and that safety issues are should be immediate to all, safety to your client, you, other clients. Um, but the rest of it's really nuanced. So I'm going to turn it over to the judges. This is a sort of know your judge issue, which, and you may not, right? Um, honestly, I, I, I think judges are maybe uh, going to be in different places about what they expect you to inform the court about. Um, I, I can give you an example, right? I mean, if the client is 30 minutes late for curfew, I, I don't think any judge is going to expect you to, to fire off a report to the court. Um, now, beyond that, I look, I, these people are um, sort of on their own journeys, right? And you're trying to help them along on that journey. And, and that's what we're trying to do too. So I know that there are going to be some bumps in the road. Um, you know, if it's a safety issue, absolutely. I want to know about that right away. If the person has left treatment, that's something I, I want to know about ASAP. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I mean, I, I understand my personal view is I understand that there are gonna be some, some bumps that you wanna work with the client on and not necessarily inform me about, and I'm fine with that. I, I support you in sort of using your judgment to, to you know, decide what's necessary to get the court involved in and what you think you can handle therapeutically with the client. But again, that's my own personal view and, and other judges you know, may differ. So Judge Curlin and Commissioner Price, what do you think? I tend to agree with that, you know, little minor, you know, I don't want to be super hyper technical. On the other hand, if a client is three hours late for curfew every night and everybody else is home, that's significant and should be, and they should be admonished that they need to get in. I really like to know about the people who are gone all night or slipping in really late and leaving in the morning and are gone all day and aren't really participating in the program, but are holding a bed for their spot when they choose to show up. Um, I think that kind of behavior is really significant. And it's usually substance use. If people are struggling with substance use, those are the people who are coming in late, leaving early, aren't around a lot, then that's what's why the curfew is important because it kind of signals to us they're out running around and that's not safe. They're going to end up with a new case or overdose or something bad is going to happen. And that's when we need to know. I'll just uh, chime in here at the end to say, and we've touched on this throughout this presentation, is if there's going to be an issue discussed in your progress report, tell us what the issue is. Tell us what you're doing to address the issue and then tell us what the court can do to support you. And so when we get those reports two or three days ahead of time, 
we have an idea of what the client is struggling with, what the clinician is already trying to put in place, and then what our strategy is going to be in court in order to try and encourage the client or make additional court orders. And so I think it's really important not to just dangle some information out there and say, we think client is using, period. We think client is using, therefore we're going to um, enroll them in outpatient by the end of this week. In court, if the court could please um, admonish the client to participate in the orientation for the outpatient program or whatever, so that we kind of have a framework of what the plan is going to be for the client and that we're not wasting court time trying to have this conversation in court. I mean, we can go over it again, but sort of get the ball rolling in terms of what we need to do to make sure that the client is moving forward if possible. So that would be my only suggestion. How about when timing wise, something happens, there's court, there, the judge, there's the attorney, there's probation. How does that all fit in? The safety issue, we need to know about it right away. Right. And, and, and that includes if someone has left treatment, like I said. Um, sure. If it's, uh, you know, coming back late for curfew, I would probably, for me, I would say wait till the next progress hearing. Um, but, you know, if you, it, I, I would echo what Judge Curlin said earlier, if you want, um, if you want the judge to encourage someone to change behavior, they need to be there, right? Either in person or, or by video is fine, but um, you know, to, to be able to get the court involved, you, they've gotta be in front of the court. Another idea, if the client is breaking curfew and, we, and we're trying to nip that in the bud, perhaps you can reach out to the um, client's attorney because you are not an attorney, you don't understand the legal process, the consequences involved, but their attorney does and that's their role. So get their attorney on the phone and say, hi, attorney Smith, um, I am the clinician for one of your clients. We have court coming up. He's doing pretty well, but we have noticed he started breaking curfew. Could I put you on the line with the client and maybe you could give them a pep talk or explain to them the consequences of them continuing to violate curfew? So you have this other resource available to you that is their attorney, and that attorney has certain confidentiality um, rules that go along with that client relationship. And so the attorney can really have an honest heart to heart with the client and say, hey, look, you're jeopardizing your position in this program. We don't want to have to bring this to the judge's attention. You need to be at home by curfew every day until your next court date or whatever. So um, tap into somebody like the client's attorney to give you some assistance uh, leading up to the court date. And that just reminds me when Commissioner Price said pep talk, I've seen reports that say something like client is really down and could use some encouragement. And I love that because that lets me know to come in with a completely different tone than I might have for another client. I'm not going to come down on them at all. I'm going to be like, how are you doing? What's going on? Do you have any questions or concerns? You're doing really well in these areas. Here's the things I want you to work on. And it's a very different tone for me when I know from you that that person needs some encouragement to stay in the program and to, to follow the rules. So I love that. And this is totally off topic, but when I, it says like 
client got a full-time job, I am nosy. I want to know where they got a job, especially if I'm not going to see them for a while. I love that because then when I see the person, I can be like, hey, are you still working at, you know, this restaurant? And, and it gives me, I write those notes in our file, like client got a job. I'm so excited. Or if they're in school, I love to know where they're going to school or what they're studying because I keep notes in the file. So when I see the client, we can talk about that. And I think those things are important. So it's not just this you know, compliance with the rules that we know them as a person and what they're doing and how they're, um, yeah, how they're moving forward. So the middle one is essentially what the judges just said. Um, you have the judges to encourage, admonish, um, modify treatment requirements so you can add something on, see them sooner than the next progress report. You have the attorneys to really understand, um, speak to the client about the legal implications of any choices they're making or not making. Um, you have your supervisors who are, probably you've seen a lot of these cases, worked with a lot of clients, have a lot of experience they can share with you. And then you have your peers. Um, the, you all are, the case managers are frontline workers. Um, they see so many different examples of what goes on in different cases and what works and what doesn't work that you guys are a plethora of like just information that you can share with each other. Um, and this is all to the idea that you are not solely responsible for this client's case. You're probably a really important person. You're the spokesperson to the court. You're probably the person the client sees the most, but you have all these resources around you um, of people who share your commitment to the client and your goal of seeing the client succeed. Um, and that is the end of my slides. So I don't know if anyone has any questions. Other things I like to see in the report, if there's destruction of property at housing, I wanna know that if there's thefts from other clients at housing. Um, those are things that I wanna know so that we can intervene right away because that puts the person at risk of being kicked out of the housing. And we don't want people getting kicked out of housing and then we're repeatedly having trouble finding a good placement for them. So that's really, really important. Another thing I wanna emphasize is when we put someone in the program, we read like a ton of stuff to them and they're just sitting there. There's no written copy, there's no contract. And we're just throwing all this information out about what they have to do and they're just sitting or nodding. And I bet a small percentage of that is taken in. So it's really good for you to know what the requirements are to go over those with the client during those initial meetings and answer their questions, make sure they know what they signed up for, that they know that this is court ordered and they're totally on board so they can succeed. One of the thing I would put out there is, you know, we've talked about when to notify uh, courts of things. And I, I also want to say, you know, there may be instances where you don't think it's an instance where the judge needs to be notified, but but where clinically you think this person could use a talk with the judge before the next progress report date. You absolutely should call the judicial assistant and say, hey, you know, I got this situation. Would it be possible, you know, would the judge be willing to hear the case before the next progress report? In my court, I will always say yes to that. Um, because anything I can do to support the work that you're doing and, and help that person stay on track is something I absolutely want to do. Something else that's really important that I think you should be aware of, I don't know why this happens, but I've seen it so often, is someone is doing phenomenally well. They are at the tail end of diversion. They are at the tail end of probation. And then things just get completely off track. 
they AWOL, they go on a binger, they disappear. And I'm like, how is this possible? Like, I know this person, they've been an outstanding client. You know, is this self-sabotage? What happens? So if there's anything we can do towards the end and you see that's happening, try to let us know immediately so we can take corrective action, especially with diversion. We don't want to risk them having criminal proceedings be reinstated because if you've done almost all two years, you're this close to getting your whole case dismissed. How sad is that to reinstate criminal proceedings and now they're going to go forward and end up as a convicted felon. So if there's something we can do to get the client back on track and help them earn that dismissal or successfully complete probation. We want to make sure we can we can do that. But I just want to make you aware of that phenomenon because if you haven't seen it, it is real and it is it's so it I don't know. It's really sad. And we just have to all work together to see if we can, you know, keep things together. And Judge Bianca wasn't here for the last training, but for those of you who were, remember we talked about a remand. A remand isn't always meant to be punitive. Sometimes it's to stop this course of action, give the person a timeout, get them stable medically. And I know it feels really bad when you're the provider and you're in court and it's really sad and your person is off meds and they get remanded and it's it's terrible for everyone. But sometimes that's the way we keep that person alive. And sometimes it is the way I get them into in-custody treatment, get them back on their meds and restable so they can successfully go back to the program. And almost always the goal is get them successfully back in the program, unless it's that circumstance where they've had the number of chances and we've told them this is your last chance. Um, then we do do something different. But for everyone short of that, we're always trying to get them restabilized and back in the program. Judge Curlin, we have a question in the chat and it um, it touches on what you were just speaking about. At what point do you remand clients? Um, if I have someone with out of control substance use who is not going to treatment, who's out running around, is gone every night, um, and you can usually tell when you see them that they are not stable. They are not okay. They're coming to court high. Um, they're just, I, I will not hesitate to remand that person, honestly, to keep them alive. We've had, you know, people overdose with fentanyl. We cannot mess around. We have to make sure that we take a corrective course of action until the person is restabilized. There's an eight week in custody substance use treatment program called start that it's hard to get people in, um, since the pandemic. And it depends on where they're housed and their security classification, but the people have gone, have said it's really great. And then you can get eight weeks of treatment before they come back out and they're in a really, really good place. So, um, it's not always that negative punitive thing, even though it looks and feels like that. The other time I remand someone is if they're off their meds and I feel that they're a danger to themselves or others. And sometimes that's when we'll go in chambers, we'll have a chambers conference. I need input from everyone because you know the person better than us. And I kind of ask you, is this a person you can work with out of custody for one week safely? And I'll give very concrete recommendations and we can all agree what those recommendations will be. And if the client can do those in a week, then we'll see where we go from there. But if you're loath to say we can safely do that, sometimes we have to do the remand for public safety, again, with the goal of getting the person restabilized and back to the program, unless we're at that you know, last time. And we've already said, I like to be really clear when I tell someone it's the last chance I tell them and I document the file and highlight it so that they know, like, 
this is your last chance. And so when they come back and they're like, I need one more chance. I'm like, no, we, we had this, you had your four violations and I told you it was your last chance. And so now we're going to move on in a different direction. So there's a question about what we'd like to hear more of in progress reports. Um, I, I, I really like to hear positive stuff. Um, you know, because if I'm going to try to encourage someone to, you know, course correct and do better in some areas, mm-hmm. I really like to also, um, you know, point out what they're doing well. I think it, it, it the message can uh, be received uh, better uh, if, if there's sort of a mix. So, um, so that's a really good thing. I also think, you know, there are times when um, a, a clinician will have a client appear in court uh, in cases where they're doing fantastically well. I think that's great for the client. Um, it's also really great for the court, for not just the judge, but all the court staff, the prosecutor, you know, the for everyone to see, hey, you know, this is working, right? Because, you know, we we focus so much on when people are, are not doing well, um, that it's, it's great every now and then to be reminded, hey, there are people out there that are thriving, um, that are doing really well in treatment. You know, we're just not seeing them all the time because they're doing well. So I'm not saying march everyone into court, um, but it's nice every now and then to, to be reminded of that, you know, hey, this person's doing great with no issues. And when people are like getting their case dismissed on diversion in the old days, pre-pandemic, they would be in court. We would clap. We'd be so happy. Now they're not there. And I'm like, let's think good thoughts. (laughs) So you lose something. So if you know someone is successfully getting their case dismissed and you want to have them hop on the WebEx so they can hear us say, we're so proud of you and your case is dismissed or they're getting their conviction expunged and we're going to give them that paperwork. It is really nice to have them. Things that I like that are extras to see in the report are things like client was resident of the month at housing I love that client is leading the resident council. Uh, Client is teaching yoga. Client is leading the hiking club. Client is teaching financial literacy to other clients. Like I love that stuff. So, and when I go to speaking engagements, I'm like, these are the kind of things clients are doing. So it's really great to share that information. Like I said, I like to know what job or where they're going to school or what's happening. And don't forget about high school. So many of our clients do not have a high school diploma. I think it is really critical for everyone who's capable. Let's get them into high school or GED programs and then say, what do you want to do as your next step? Vocational volunteer work do you want to go to college and let's get that person into the next phase so they're ready to move forward um something i was doing at the end of odr i read an article in the la times that there were dogs who've been in cages nine months because no one is there to walk them and i was talking to people who maybe weren't school oriented do you like pets would you like to walk dogs and i was saying why don't you call the shelter and see if you can walk dogs because that would give you something to do that would be really positive for yourself and for the community i noticed that clients who were most successful were connected to their community in some way. They were either going to school, to classes, to church, um, visiting family, volunteering, getting their alcohol and drug certification to be a counselor. Those people were really successful. The people hanging out at home doing nothing are at risk of using and just you know, losing it. So we try to get everyone connected to something that's a good fit for them. 
Thank you so much to our presenters for this information today. It was an incredible presentation. So thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it.